Welcome to the very first episode of Saving Planet A. I'm your host, Gizem Eren. In this show, we learn together about sustainability, climate change, a circular economy, and jobs that help save the planet. In every episode, I chat to a planet saver. Experts with environmental careers, activists, or simply people who put sustainability at the heart of what they do. We talk about how they got here and what inspires them to keep going. This week, my guest is an old and very dear friend of mine, Simone Matar-Altoy. I met Simone almost 20 years ago when I first moved to Amsterdam. Simone has a marketing and business studies background from Brazil. She then went on to do her PhD on sustainable agriculture at Hokkaido University in Japan. After moving to Amsterdam, she worked as a marketing consultant for brands such as Unilever and BP. She had consultant roles on sustainability in various firms and later set up her own ESG consultancy company. She also worked as a lecturer in the University of Amsterdam, where she taught the business and sustainability course for exchange students. Most recently, Simone has been working as a corporate solutions manager, providing analytical, environmental, social and governance, ESG, research, ratings and data to corporations. Simone, welcome to Saving Planet A, and thank you so much for being my first guest. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, my pleasure. First of all, Simone, what does sustainability mean to you? So I've been in the field of sustainability since 1999, so it's a long, long time. And for me, it's a very personal thing. I come from a family of uh, small family farmers, so my father was born in a farm and he was working in the farm until he was 14 years old when he decided to move to the capital of Brazil. And my grandmother, she was born in the Amazon region and she's also indigenous people uh, descendant. So the universe of sustainability and the universe of minorities and the world that we live in, environment, is all really personal to me. So sustainability means a lot. <laughs> yeah. So you, you taught sustainability at the University of Amsterdam to young students. How old were they? My students were between the age of 18 and 22, more or less. Okay. So what was that experience like? Oh, it was really nice. So I, I feel that these uh, young people, this generation that is now in their 20s, they're really conscious about so many ESG issues, you know, especially when it comes to social inclusion, when it comes to equality, when it comes to environment, that is really interesting to see how much it has changed since 1999 when I was in the university and these themes were not really, you know, something that we'll talk in the cafeteria, for example. And nowadays it is. It's something that is really part of their everyday life and they're really mindful of, of it all, which is great. Gives a lot of hope, doesn't it? It does, it does. It was really fringe when we were in uni, right? Yeah, exactly. It was a thing of tree huggers. And so I was studying business management. And then when I decided to, to go to agribusiness, you know, my friends were like, agribusiness, what are you going to do with that? And, and then later on on sustainability, nobody really understood what I was doing, but now they do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now it it's really is mainstream. 
It is, and it's great that it is, you know. Um, the more mainstream, the better, because everybody has to be in it. Everybody has to be embracing sustainability for it to really happen, right? Because it's it's really like you're saying, it's planet A is one planet, and there is no planet B. There's no other option than this, so everybody has to be on board. Exactly. Some universities, they are integrating climate studies across various disciplines, for example, there's a university in the U.S. They recently launched the um, Sustainability Across the Curriculum program, and they're teaching all their 20,000, I think, undergraduate students how their majors intersect with sustainability and the environment. So like an art student or a law student would be taking these courses. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think it's, like I was saying, you know, it's something that is so much part of everyday life of the students you know even in high school now i see that some high schools want to start introducing sustainable issues also in their curriculum i think it's it's about time actually <laughs> so things have to change and they have to change soon politicians are changing laws uh, governments are changing the way that they are doing business um, society is changing so it's it's natural that the universities and high schools, they want also to implement changes in their curriculum to adapt and to start talking more frequently about these themes. So I think it's not only great, but it's necessary. Exactly, exactly. Do you think there's enough work being done on the career choices related to sustainability and the environment that um, kids can pursue you know, I'm an environmental engineer, so people know these fields a little bit, but there's so much that you can do related to sustainability. It's not just environmental studies. Do you think people know enough about these choices from a young age? I think they're starting to know more. Um, the difference between the students that I got uh, in 2021 compared to the students that I got uh, four or five years ago is ginormous. Um, the students now, they are far more aware and they are taking minor minor courses in their universities. And um, I see a big difference. Yeah, I think like you're saying, many universities already want to, to put sustainability as part of their curriculum. But I also think that lots of students are just more conscious about their consumption, for example. They are shopping in, in companies that they know that are more sustainable or more um, environmentally friendly or more into equality, for example. So I think it's, it's already part of their um, understanding of society. So universities catching up with that, actually. Uh, yeah, so the students, the young people are leading and the um, organizations are following, right? I think so. Yeah, that's the feeling. Yeah. <laughs> that, great. It sounds really good and hopeful for the future. It is. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about your current role, um, Simone, ESG research. What is it exactly? What is ESG and um, what's your favorite thing about what you do? All right. So I work for a company that has um, does risk rating for companies. What does that mean? Um, so every year, a company, let's say like a fast consumer goods company, they need in the end of the year to have their financial reporting. 
and they also need to have their ESG reporting. So they have to say, for example, what they are doing for human rights and labor rights inside their companies. They have to say, what are they doing with their product? You know, are they making their products more sustainable? Uh, they have to talk about things that are related to ESG issues. And many times they use the United Nations ESG SDGs, you know, the Sustainable Development Goals. So they have to write about those things that they are doing in their company. And then my company goes to these companies and give them a rating. So they say, okay, regarding ESG issues, you receive this grade. And this grade is from zero to five. And the um, investors, for example, they look at those grades and think, okay, is this a safe company for me to invest in or not really safe? Because it's a risk rating number, right? A risk rating grade that they get. And also consumers, because this this um, great. <laughs> These ratings, they are publicly available. So if you go to the website, you can just see it there and also take your own conclusion. Do I want to buy products from this company or not? Is this company a good company or not? So that's what I do. After these companies get a risk rating, they come to, to my team and my team with them, we do a performance analytics report. That is a report that we are going to show them compared to five peers, what um, is being done in the industry that they can improve uh, their management. For example, um, a company gets a risk rating where they say, oh, this I'm not doing really good with human rights, for example. And then with my product, we show to them what the best-in-class group is doing you know, in that matter. And then they can see an example of it and then they can later on implement it or just make it better what they are doing. And then in, by improving their management and improving the way that they are working with ESG issues, then later on, if they are really good at it, then this, they become less risky, right, for investors to invest in them. So you help companies improve their ESG risk rating? I give examples for them, right? So consultants help the companies on on implementing change. But because uh, the company that I work for, they work with the risk ratings, we cannot really help them. But we can show to them how other companies are doing and what other companies are doing better than they are. Uh, as an example, you know, like it's like a roadmap. Okay, I see, I see. So you're more, you're taking more of an objective stance and just sort of giving them, um, this is what other people do. Exactly, like comparing them to to other companies in the in the market in their own industry and saying, look, this is how it's supposed to be done. Let's put it like that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> this is actually becoming the law. Yeah. So, for example, um, in Europe now, um, they are trying to push that from 2023, many companies will really have to start showing what they are doing related to ESG, and that is going to be the law. Yeah. And also in the United States, they are also trying to change legislation, um, but then it's more related to carbon emissions. Um, so some things are changing and really becoming the law. Also in the Netherlands, for example, the Child Act, every company that sells products here in the Netherlands, they will have to have 
an overview of their supply chain because the Dutch government does not want any products that is related to child labor to enter the Dutch market. So from 2023, um, the companies will have to have proof that they don't have forced child labor in their supply chain. Great, great. Yeah, that sounds yeah. Uh, ambitious, but really good developments, um, which leads me to my next question, actually. Obviously, we know the world is going through difficult times. Um, COVID-19, the rising cost of living, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and the anticipated food crisis. How do you think these issues will um, affect sustainability and our quest for a low-carbon future? Yeah, so many things are changing. For example, uh, Europe is very dependent on, on the gas coming from Russia. So because of this war of Russia and Ukraine, the whole European Union decided that they don't want to use the gas coming from Russia anymore. Uh, but to do that, they need alternatives for the gas, right? So what the whole European Union is trying to do now is to invest far more in sustainable and renewable energy like um, wind and solar panels and the kind of renewable energy that we already know that are there. Uh, so these kind of, of things are changing for better because now they see that it's time to make a big change and the war in Ukraine just increased this um, this idea of, of investing more on renewable energy. But also what we are going to start seeing with climate change is that a lot of um, people will start also migrating from risk regions to regions that are less risky um, to live in. So that is also going to make a lot of changes in the way society see um, what we call now refugees, right? Because of climate, the climate crisis that we are living in. So this kind of thing will start also increasing. Yes, yes, unfortunately. And um, do you think the rising cost of living will... Um make people consume less and consume with more thought? I think a, a package of things will, will do that, right? So it's not only that things are becoming more expensive, but um, many things are becoming scarce. Mm -hmm. um, some, some minerals, for example, or some things that are easy to get from nature. Um, the more people we have walking on the planet the less access we will have to all these materials, right? Um, and also, they are finite. They are finite source. So um, there, is, there is coming a moment that there won't be enough minerals to do as much, you know, to make as many products anymore. So um, consumption is, is changing. So we see a lot of uh, investment here in Europe on circularity. So you see, for example, the... the Prefecture of Amsterdam, they are really investing heavily on uh, circular economy and they want by 20, well, the entire, uh, the federal government of the Netherlands want by 2050 that the entire uh, society here is fully circular. So they are, they really want you to consume better. So lots of things are, are being invested on buying less, but also buying more secondhand um making sure that what you buy can be recycled or that you can buy is already recycled. 
uh, no plastic bags anymore in the supermarkets. This kind of thing is is changing here. Yeah. Yeah, and, and products designed to be taken apart and recycled, the components recycled at the end of their life, right? Exactly. Like, for example, carpets are a big problem, huh? especially mm -hmm. in the United States, for example. Carpet is number one problem for the landfills. So here in the Netherlands, there's already a company that is making carpets that you can recycle easier but also that you make the, the carpet in tiles, not in sheets, but in small tiles that then you can just take a tile away and replace that specific tile instead of taking the entire carpet out anymore. So there are lots of small and smart solutions being thought of, especially uh, startups here in Amsterdam. Great, great developments. Um, so now let's um, go back to the beginning. My favorite part, your childhood. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And Simone, can you tell us a little bit about the environment you grew up in and how that affected you to be the person that you are now? Yeah. So, uh, like I said, um, I grew up, I, I'm a mix of a lot of things. <laughs> I have a globalized blood, uh, but my, the family of my father, they, are, they come from an Italian immigrant uh, background and when they moved to Brazil they all become they all became small family farmers so my father himself was born and raised in a small farm and until the age of 14 he was working and living there so when I was a child we used to go a lot to the farm of his uncle so my great uncle so I grew up you know riding horses but cool. also feeding the chicken and looking at the piglets, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So f the farm life was something that was very common for me. Um, and also uh, from the other side of, of my family, my mother's mother, she was, uh, she was born in the Amazon region. So she was really an indigenous woman which got out of, of the tribe and she, she grew up uh, in, a, in a different way. But still, uh, always for her, when we were sick, she always had a herb or she had a natural um, medicine that we, we should drink or take. And, but also the love for the environment, the love for plants, the love for, you know, rivers, that also was always there. So for me, when I go to a waterfall or, you know, I'm more in touch with, with the environment, it always feels a bit like home. <laughs> so, yeah, so I think these issues, if, if you are being nurtured in that way when you were a child, it becomes part of who you are and you want to protect those, right? So I want to protect the existence of small family farmers. You know, for me, when I was doing my studies in Japan, agroecology was the focus of my studies and small family farmers were the, the focus of my studies because of, of my background. And nowadays, of course, um, social inclusion is something very strong, but protection of the environment is something strong so yeah so I think yeah the way I grew up and how I grew up it, it had a lot to do with uh, of what I do and what I love to do right now. Did you know what you wanted to be when you were young or did it sort of happen organically? It happened organically uh, because also when you live in a in a society like the Brazilian society um 
there is this drive of of succeeding and checking a lot of boxes you know that i know yeah i i'm sure in in turkey is very similar <laughs> Yes, exactly. Yeah. Very, very similar. Uh, life is linear. You have to succeed exactly. constantly. <laughs> But you know, I always had this this drive inside my heart when um, I would see. You know, when you're driving in Brazil, close to the area, I'm, I come from the Cerrados region in Brazil, and when you you drive there, you see a lot of land not being used. And that always bothered me a lot, you know, like thinking like, wow, you know, so many people need to, to work the land and so many people are hungry. Um, so many people are so poor and all this land lying idle here and nobody doing anything about it, you know, that always bothered me uh, since a very young age. Um, and I think in the end, that's what drives us, isn't it? Something that touches you somewhere that strikes a nerve and then you go like, hmm, maybe I should do something about it. And yeah, that's what I'm doing now. <laughs> I'm doing something about it. <laughs> and, and you're doing a great job of it. I hope so. <laughs> you are, you are. Did you have a, a role model or a mentor growing up? Or were you your own mentor? <laughs> <laughs> No, so I, I grew up in an environment where lots of my friends were also a bit like me. I come from a generation of Brazilians who were triggered by many things, like um, my best friend, she's really serious about uh, social justice. Another friend of mine is very serious about uh, social inclusion. Um, some of my cousins, you know, the ones that are more linked to indigenous people, they're really serious about um, indigenous people's rights. So I think the environment where I grew, I grew up in was very fertile in that sense, you know. So I think all of us, we, we started pushing each other to, to be part of the change for better in our society. And I always had people in my life, a professor or an uncle or my parents, you know, who, who were always also triggering something inside of me that was saying, you know, it's time for you to make a change. My mother always saying, I'm, I'm raising you not for myself, but I'm raising you for the world. Ah, yeah. That's very wise, actually. Very wise, yeah. So this kind of thing always make me want also to take over the world, you know, just not to stay in my safe environment, but just go for it, you know. <laughs> so, yeah. That sounds awesome. That sounds, I met your mother, actually. I know she's a wise uh, lady, but this, I like this thing. Can I borrow it to use on my <laughs> Yeah, yeah, go for it. <laughs> It's open, no copyrights. Oh, great, great. So listeners, feel free to borrow Simone's mother's wise words. Yes. Um, so what has been the biggest challenge that you've faced and overcome? Uh, the biggest challenges, I think, is, is really this thing of go for the world, you know, because sometimes the world can be a very challenging place to be in. So I grew up in Brasilia, so the, the capital city of Brazil, and I grew up in quite a a protected environment. And then when I was 23, I moved to Japan. 
um, on my own. I got a full scholarship from the Japanese government. And with that scholarship, I just moved to Japan without speaking the language, <laughs> without knowing how to cook, Whoa. you know, without. Yeah. So I, I really had to learn from scratch to become a young adult in in Japan, which is already a country that is is gorgeous, it's beautiful, but it's also very challenging, you know. So I think for me to to move to Japan and start my whole life at 23 there, um, and then I live in Japan alone for six years, and then uh, again I moved to the Netherlands, and then at the age of uh, 29 I had again to start all over again and make friends and learn a new language, and so I think these were the most challenging times of my t my my life, you know, like this reconstructing yourself and rethinking of who are you and why are you doing this what's your objective you know exactly exactly moving abroad definitely makes you you have to reconstruct your life and yourself in the process definitely and just um, a side note simone speaks japanese now yeah <laughs> and uh, she's a black belt in karate am i right it's shorinji kempo it's a yeah it's a beautiful beautiful martial art yeah it's a very interesting one it is a bit like aikido and karate mixed up that sounds really cool. And she is a good cook, I know from experience. So <laughs> definitely moving to Japan did you a world of good, Simone. It did, it did. It was fantastic. Yeah, it was beautiful. And, and I made friends for life as well. Lots of, of people that I've met there are really good friends until today. So, yeah. That sounds great. Um, but obviously not always everything is... Um, perfect. No. Let's talk about failures. What's a failure that you experienced and what did you learn from that experience? Yeah, so um, a failure, let's say, yeah, a big failure that I had in my career was that, so I was pregnant of my second son and um, I was working at a company and they just decided when it was time for my maternity leave, they just decided to let me go. Um, and not renew the contract that I had with them. Um, and that was really, really hard for me because, you know, I was heavily pregnant, obviously couldn't look for a job, <laughs> was going to deliver a baby in a month from then. And also, once you have a very small child, it's, it's difficult for, for you to, to look for a job and uh, to concentrate on a career, right? And I already had a, my first child. So that was really a big blow for me. It was a very difficult uh, moment for me. How did you feel? When it happened, of course, I felt miserable. But at the same time, I also had this amazing moment of my life coming in, right? The birth of my son, which was fantastic. And, you know, I think almost every mother knows it's, it's really a blessing to, to, to have a child. So when that happened and I decided, okay, I'm, I'm a mom of, of two kids. I don't have a job. So what do I do? And then after a lot of considerations, I decided that it was time to stop my professional life for a while. So then I decided that for three years, I would just stay home, take care of my kids, you know, support my husband in his career. And that's what I did. And I think thinking back now, I think that was the, the right thing to do at that moment for me and for my family. It was not a good moment of my career. And 
it was very difficult also to make the decision as a professional, you know, as a woman that grew up learning so much and investing so much on um, on knowledge, you know, to decide to be a staying-at-home mom uh, was a difficult decision to make and criticized by a lot of women, I have to say. Oh, yeah. Lots of women around me, they were saying, like, you're crazy not to work. How can you do this? And But, you know, I think at some moments in our lives, um, and in our careers, we have to make decisions that are important for ourselves. And we are the only ones who know what's best for us. So we have to really not listen to the outside world and just listen to your own needs and your own family's needs. So can we say that that experience, um, the quote-unquote failure, um, uh, taught you to pause and reflect rather than just go, go, go. Exactly. And also to think, okay, what is important for me right now? And, and you know, I never really paused in my career because I kept on reading a lot. I kept on following the news. I kept on going to sometimes when I could <laughs> go to small events, you know, in my career. So I never stopped 100% learning. That kept on going. This spoke to you, right? This you you were interested as a person exactly. in sustainability as a whole, not just for your for making money for your job, but it's it's my passion. Yeah, your, exactly, exactly. And then reading, doing all that, and looking after your family doesn't seem like a chore, probably. So I think also that right when you choose a path in your life or a career in something that you absolutely love and you believe in. So it's never ever going to feel like work, right? It's always going to feel like it's your mission or it's, it's part of your purpose. It's part of, of who you are, actually. And also, it's okay to change paths, isn't it? Like you did teaching, you did consultancy, you did some marketing, and then you're doing ESG research now. So it's okay to change fields, professions as well, based on what you want to do, because that can change also. Yes. Yes, of course. And, you know, I've I've moved from Brazil to Japan and then from Japan to, to the Netherlands. And also that I had to adapt because once you are in a new country, it's you don't have a network, right? You don't have the, the the ways around the society. So you don't really know also your way around. So I had to adapt. I had to adapt. And the more I grew professionally and the more I I met people, the more I, I broadened my network, the more I saw there are also different things around that you can choose from, right? Because what I see is that some people, they start a job when they are fresh out of university, you know, and then they join um, a company and they say, oh, now I have to grow inside the company and I have to become, I don't know, a partner of this company to be a success. And that's not really true. Huh? I think there are so many options, you know, the world is so broad there are so many things there to to be discovered as well. And for example, I also opened my my own company at the moment, you know, 
because I felt, okay, I can, I can do this on my own. I have enough friends that I can partner with. Um, I, I was a lecturer also at the university. So then I was just going my own way and making my own decisions, which was great. Now I'll move on to my final questions. Um, I'll be asking these at the end of every episode and you can answer them together or separately. So the first one is what's giving you hope right now? And the second is what is your best tip for saving planet A? Okay, what is giving me hope is that I see that ESG issues are becoming really mainstream. And not only is it becoming mainstream, but it's being backed up by policies. And like I was saying, laws, you know, it's not being only stimulated anymore, but it's being um, part of the right thing to do, right? The legal thing to do. So this is giving me a lot of hope. And also the youngsters, you know, to see all this generation coming so mindful of the environment, so mindful of inclusion, so mindful of human rights, you know, which um, which is a world of difference from my generation, Generation X. <laughs> so that is giving me a lot of hope. And one tip to to save the world is... To do exactly this, you know, be mindful. Be mindful of what you consume. Be mindful of uh, where you buy your clothes. Be mindful of um, what you talk to your children about, you know. Be mindful of the things you're saying to your child also in the living room of your house, you know. Because if, if, if a mom is not inclusive, the child will learn that pattern, right? But also if you're buying a supermarket that you know is not doing the right thing you know your child is also consuming that and he's seeing it or if you're buying very very cheap clothes that you're going to throw away after three times your child is also learning that pattern from you so yeah be mindful be mindful of of the things you're doing in life and and pressure the companies that you like to do the right thing too you know as a consumer you have that power If you see that they are not doing the right thing, stop buying from them. <laughs> exactly, exactly. If we only knew how much power we had. Oh, yeah, that's the thing, you know. If consumers knew how much, yeah, how, how much power they have just to organize, you know, organize small consumer groups, organize society in simple and, you know, effective ways, uh, we can go a long way. Hopefully, hopefully we will. Hopefully we will. Simone. Thank you so much for being my guest. It's been lovely chatting with you as always. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you so much. My pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode of Saving Planet A, I'd really appreciate it if you comment and subscribe so that other people can know that we exist. Thank you again for listening. 